Hello and welcome to The Appetite, a podcast brought to you by Opal Food and Body Wisdom, an eating disorder treatment center in Seattle, Washington. I'm your host, Carter Umhow, a therapist, artist, and writer. And today we are back with Opal co-founder and nutrition director, Julie Church, talking about eating competency skills. Last week, we talked about food acceptance and gave a bit of an introduction, which we, of course, will touch on a little bit today, too, to this four-part series that we're doing. So if you haven't listened yet, feel free to just kind of stop here and go back to um, the episode beforehand to get a little bit more context. As you'll be hearing, all four of the skills that we'll be talking about in our four-part series have a lot to do with one another. They intersect, they overlap. So feel free to start where you want to, but just know this is our second part. So obviously we have a lot of passion around this topic considering we're doing four different parts to this series. And that is because we believe that Satter's work and these ideas of eating competency skills is is kind of the like groundwork beneath intuitive eating. It's the groundwork of healthy eating. This is about the how rather than the what of eating. And that's what we are wanting to present to you all. So put simply, Satter really believes that competent eaters not only enjoy food, but they are comfortable in their enjoyment of it. And so today we're going to be talking a bit more about sort of the eating attitudes that underlie our relationship to food and how to unpack those and really allow food to be something that gets to stay in a positive light or maybe be put back into a positive light for the first time. So, Julie, hi. Hi, Carter. Hi. So can you let people know a little bit again about what eating competency skills are and where that concept came from? Yes. So we found eating competency through Ellen Satter's work. She created that phrase and has validated research tool that assesses eating competency. We love the tool because what it does is it allows for us to define what everyone wants us to define, which is what is healthy eating. And it allows us to not make healthy eating about the what of food and does it match a pyramid or a plate or some prescription or diet, but rather it allows us to expand and look at one's relationship with food, more the how of eating, not the what of eating. So there are four areas, which the last episode we just did was food acceptance skills. And then this week we are talking about eating attitudes. And where will we be headed after that? The other two are internal regulation skills and contextual skills. Okay. Those are the four total. Okay. So we'll hold those for later. But for now, we talked about food acceptance skills and and remind us what that is. So food acceptance skills I like to think of is the appetite and the enjoyment that we have around food. So being aware of the things that motivate us to get food and the things that a part of our food relationship that has us seek out something. So it starts with enjoyment so often. So recognizing what about food and what food experiences and what tastes and textures and all those things are pleasurable to us and being connected to that and then being more in tune with it. And that's a biological development that we would feel pleasure even to get the things that we need. Right. Right? Totally. Yeah, it's part of our survival that keeps us alive as the human race. (laughs) (laughs) So building off of that, what is eating attitudes, our topic for today? Yeah, I like to talk about the eating attitudes after food acceptance skills, actually, because with the basis of thinking, okay, so we're drawn to eating and pleasure and enjoyment is a part of the eating experience. What else comes with that? And 
I think that we also not just have taste buds and this pull for food. We also do have beliefs and feelings. And I think a good way to summarize it is that Ellen Satter would say that too much is made of the difficulties of eating. (laughs) And so, so many of the current attitudes about food and eating uh, that then we have these beliefs and feelings that under undergird <laughs> those attitudes are so negative and punishing. And when I think about the, that our attitudes might control our behaviors, influence our feelings, and dictate our priorities, that's really powerful stuff. <laughs> and the way that Ellen Satter phrases just this I keep on thinking like a dark cloud um, over the current attitudes around eating is that she says so many of the current attitudes, basically, they just lead us to not be fed. They encourage us to not feed ourselves, nourish ourselves enough. And then they also leave us in a place of not taking pleasure in food and eating. If you think about all the ways, the beliefs and values that are out there about food, I do think that that's so true. It leaves us underfed and not feeling comfortable enjoying food. Do you think that's across the board, culture to culture, country to country, or is that particularly an American thing? There is actually data gathered around the fact that Americans tend to have the least comfort in pleasure in their food. So they actually value the fact that food uh, tasting good is something that is something that's important to them. And they would say that that's a really strong influencer as to why they choose to eat something. But they don't feel comfortable with that pleasure. And they don't actually feel comfortable and believe that that's a good, quote unquote, healthy thing to do is to listen to that pleasure and that good taste. <laughs> so in contrast, in they've there are some studies that you know we would study the French culture or the Japanese culture and see that the French culture is way higher in terms of pleasure and taking um, taste as a high value and nutrient value being a lower. And Japanese is more balanced, but American culture is way more focused on the nutrients and getting the right things in your body versus taste. And yet we all have Pretty similar functions in our taste bud. Taste bud <laughs> right. or one. Yes. We have pretty similar t- functions in our taste buds. And so that swing, are you saying that is mostly about the attitude in America of it being, it's supposed to be more about nutrients and eating the right thing. And so even though we want taste to be a priority, it's really not. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, the beliefs around nutrition, the things that we're more taught and more fed, um, (laughs) pun intended, I guess, uh, fed through media and pop culture and all that is more so, well, this is the food that is going to give your body this disease prevention or this nutrient that has some promise, you know. So that's what more of what we're hearing about versus getting a lot of encouragement to go for the thing that tastes the best or that really connects to your own story with food. That's not what I hear. Yeah. I I think that it's really difficult to imagine a different way of eating mm-hmm. and being if you haven't been exposed to it. I mean, to think about Americans being in groups of Americans, getting the same message and getting it from media and getting it from doctors and all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, I remember at Opal, 
I would be asked by clients all the time, like, is this really realistic to be eating like this? Nobody talks like this outside of these walls. Nobody is enjoying food. Nobody is not obsessed with diets. Like, that's just not the real world. And I remember thinking, like, I don't know any of the people that are obsessed with diets Mm. anymore. Like, I I did, but I don't know anybody that is, uh, like, freaking out about food at this point, personally speaking. Yeah. And it's an interesting thing to be just so deeply influenced by that which you're surrounded by, which is normal, but to parse out the eating attitude of your particular community can be hard to do without the contrast. I know. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I know that I I recently moved and so have met new people and deepened some relationships that were already existing. And in deepening relationships with people, you usually spend time eating and maybe vacationing. And I think it's been really interesting to get to know new people and see the way that they engage with food and feel feel really comfortable and drawn to some and not others, right? And it's so hard to make this have legs and like tangible examples, but For me, it's this feeling of like, oh, good, like all of us brought our food to the vacation. And then as people are unpacking, you're seeing food that's familiar to you, things that you would normally buy, not the diet food or um, all the substitutes or or things that would maybe not be – um, what you would have in your home. And I, from from my standpoint, that just was like, oh, this this feels good to me to feel like, oh, okay, I'm going to, I think my experience so far of this family is like, they they just eat, they eat normal. They are sometimes putting emphasis on, on having the yummy, tasty, pretty <laughs> like um, meal. And then sometimes it's the function of like, let's get our kids together. Let's make sure to get the pasta on the table and some few other things. And Make sure they sit there for 10 minutes and then, yes, they can go back to the pool, you know. Um, and I think I just felt really um, grateful to to walk away from that going, oh, I think we have similar eating attitudes. Um, they don't have feels, feelings and beliefs about food that are going to strongly impact being with them. It's more just normal. <laughs> yeah. It, I was just thinking about how much you can probably read from – opening someone's refrigerator (laughs) in terms of their eating attitudes. True. And what is present and what's not, both in terms of diet culture, but also just in general, culture to culture, you know, what you would see in someone's refrigerator and what you could learn about them. Um, I think Mm. that's why people are so obsessed with like cribs and house tours and all these things that are like, you know, the celebrities opening their (laughs) refrigerators. It's like, what are are people doing? What do they believe? How are they... Mm -hmm. How are they eating behind closed doors? Totally. It's fascinating. Totally. Yes. And I think this that that feeling that I have, it's like you can't get just by seeing a picture. It's like you also need to under like have some conversations or like understand why they're having that or hear them talk about their food, right? Because yeah. you never know. Somebody might be buying that because it's lemon flavored and they love lemon flavored. It was the only lemon flavored X that was there. Or they could be buying it because it has some label on it that says it's low fat or it's gluten-free or whatever, right? Like maybe they bought it because it was lemon, you know? (laughs) Maybe they bought it because it said it was gluten-free. I mean, who knows why they bought it? So until you actually know and get into the conversation too. Right. So, yeah. I I think about a particular place in my life where I can can mark that my eating sort of ended. Well, yeah, it's really poignant. But it is mm -hmm. that it's that felt experience that you're pointing to that Mm. I think suddenly started shifting. I think about my relationship to food before this point 
as like <laughs> really regular routine disordered choices. I know I think about, you know, what was in my grocery bag walking from mm. Union Square in New York City to my apartment. I like know what those things were, how I would make them. Like it's so yeah. it's still in my brain as this very routine thing. But at 19, I left New York and then wound up for like lack of, of to sort of explain it more simply, I was studying abroad for a few years. And I was initially right out of, gosh, right out of the U.S. in this villa in Italy, which already sounds amazing. And I'm aware of that. It's like, well, sometimes I feel a little self-conscious even mentioning it because it was really quite a gift. But I was in this villa in Italy. There were meals that were served every night as part of the part of the study. And we were studying art and and moving all through Tuscany, um, doing some art history tours. I think what was really profound about that time, uh, for many reasons, it felt like I was beginning to st- like wake up. I wasn't a very emotionally or physically healthy person, I think, before then. And I, I can think about that first month living in this villa before I wound up living elsewhere where I just was sort of introduced to all these new ways of being and and food was one of the main ones where there were these Tuscan women that were cooking us dinner and in Italy you start with pasta instead of end with it. You have mm-hmm. the salad at the end of the meal rather than the beginning. So you start right off the bat with the like richest, most luxurious part of the meal in my opinion, mm-hmm. which was really fun and I sat in this big dining hall with, you know, one long table, two long tables, excuse me, just friends sharing and passing food and just so much excitement around the food. So, I mean, just like tears, honestly. I mean, I just would cry like, what is this? This is like this Mm. sage and ricotta cannelloni that's just like delicate and perfect. And then there's like roasted pheasant. And I mean, it's just like insane, insane food that really shifted my way of relating to food. And I struggled with it at first being like, how is it okay that I am enjoying this so much? Is it okay that I feel so free? Will I ever stop eating now? This is like (laughs) really good. It was an excessive like amount of richness for a month. So that was part of it. But it was really fun. And Mm -hmm. it was really connecting. And I was surrounded by people that weren't freaking out about that. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that some people were under the surface, but that just wasn't the way that we were relating to the food on the table. Right. It was a culture in those moments of enjoyment and delight and exploration. Mm -hmm. And so we all got to get in line with that instead. Mm. So... I'd love that I'm like envision that right now the sounds of it actually are the what I am most intrigued with. Like I can just hear the boisterousness of the people and I can envision you sitting and taking some of it in and maybe yeah, mirroring and ex- trying it out and noting who's naturally this and just expressive and who's kind of cautiously doing it. Like you're saying, I don't know. And yeah. then the smells and but the yeah the 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 sound of it is I I guess we can envision some of or experience some of that like in a yeah some sort of a dining environment where people are eating and dining and taking in the food of it that especially sounds people were really grateful Absolutely. for the food and very attentive to their senses and 
describing yeah. that, I guess, using words to describe that and emotions mm-hmm. to describe yep. it. Is that? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting you saying that because over the years, even present day, really, I feel like I, I get comments from people about how much it looks like I enjoy food, which is oh. unsettling, I think, at times because – I know what culture we live in, so I don't know if that is a compliment <laughs> or judgment or it, it's hard to know. But women have said stuff to me. I mean, certainly clients, but, you know, peers, too. Like, yeah. whoa, like you seem to really just feel free mm-hmm. with food. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Like, okay. I think a real experience of that is when you brought in the croissants <sighs> with the canless the episode. Yes. Uh, yeah, you just wanted to keep talking and engaging and describing. And so I think that's a good example of what you're describing. I know. I'm having a hard time changing the subject sorry. right now. It's so fun. Yes. Yeah. So, that yeah, that's, that's something. Yeah, I think that's a gift. I think that that means, too, that people could probably be given permission around you to also engage with food with such a pleasurable, taste-focused so. Um, experience. And yeah. I think that's a real gift. Thank you. The The thing with eating attitudes, though, like, I mean, we're talking about some of the beautiful felt experience of being in more of a safe place of, a, of an accepting, yeah. joyous environment of positive eating attitude. Yeah. But the truth is, is that it, it, we are in a culture that mostly is not that. Yeah. And it's really normal to be surrounded by people with a lot of judgments around food and a, a fear of choosing the wrong thing in front of somebody else and getting that judgment and eating too much and what will they think. And it seems like everybody has eyes on them when yeah. they order something or yeah. put something in their mouth. It yeah. feels like that is the cultural norm to mm-hmm. be able to comment, yeah. to think that there is commentary and there will be around mm-hmm. what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't help but give a teaser for the last episode about internal regulation because I just see that as such a disruption in all of us trusting ourselves and trusting each other. So why does somebody need to feel fearful of somebody else's judgments or their own experience of what they truly want to eat or how much they want to eat based on their own internal stuff? Like why does somebody have to Uh, fear that they're going to get hand slapped or they're going to get verbally attacked because of what they're choosing to eat if what they're doing is listening to their body. And so that trust component, uh, that being such a foundation to our food relationship is just so important. And if one's eating attitudes have to be, I think, just in the head and, and be based on what's okay to the person across the table or okay in the current culture, the beliefs and values and feelings of the current culture or the person they're with, it's just it, – it moves us away from our own selves and it does not allow us to be – yeah, uh, continue to grow that part of knowing ourselves because we're just constantly hypervigilant about <laughs> – all meeting everybody else's expectations and not listening to our own bodies. Yes. And and uh, as you were talking, I was thinking about the phrase listening to your body. I think that in our culture, that is so um, – it's assumed, I think, maybe I've been around eating disorder work too much, but it's assumed that that means you're listening to your hunger or your fullness in a am I full or am I not kind of binary yeah. rather than the complexity of appetite. We can say that a million times. Like there's there's complexity to appetite. It's not just about the 
full, not full, when when I did the episode long, long ago where I was sort of explaining the definition of the appetite for us and why we named the appetite the appetite, I referenced a writer named Kelsey Miller who has done work for Refinery29 and Cup of Joe um, and is a badass um, writer that does a lot around intuitive eating. And she was the one that said appetite is this this question to be answered. It's not this binary our eating attitudes are are such exactly. the same thing. Exactly. They are not a, a stagnant arrival point or a binary of like you're right or you're wrong. Like it is. It's a something we just like mature into. It's like a fine yeah. wine. It is <laughs> fine wine, yes. <laughs> but it also reflects the culture so much. Like you're saying, like the fact that we think in binaries is American in and of itself. Like the, the, the fact that we think in um, what efficiency, the fact that we mm-hmm. think in, you know, what's going to be the biggest bang for your buck, buck. in these particular ways. <laughs> ways. Like, yeah. the, it's not about how do I feel and is it okay? Like we're just going to be connected in pleasure and like it, that's not the value of our culture. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. that's reflected in the way that we think about what it means to listen to our bodies. And so – it's yeah, just striking me how deep this idea of eating attitudes is because you'll find the culture mm-hmm. in the way that people talk about food. Yeah. I was just thinking about an example with David Chang. Do you know who that is? No. He's a famous chef. He's the owner of Momofuku. Oh yeah. Okay. And which is a you know a restaurant throughout the whole world at this point. Mm-hmm. And he has a show that I've referenced on the podcast before called Ugly Delicious. And he does a lot around eating attitudes. I didn't realize this, trying to challenge people's beliefs around different foods. And he does an episode with MSG. Oh, okay. And he unpacks the racism of MSG and, like, has people try things that they associate with um, sort of stereotypically bad foods Mm -hmm. that they have in their mind. And then has them try foods that have MSG, but they don't know it. And they just, like, to talk about their actual genuine response to each. And with the one that they know has MSG, they're freaking out. And they're like, oh, I feel horrible. Oh, now I have a headache and da, 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 da. And with the food that they didn't know was in it, they're like, oh, that was delicious. That was fine. I feel good. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So not only is David Chang pointing out that you're going to have a different reaction to the same food based off of the the relationship to that food that you have, but your relationship to that food in and of itself is going to be influenced by all these other attitudes as well, whether they be – racist assumptions that you're not aware of, different biases, different belief systems that you got from your grandma or, you know, whatever else, you will literally have a different physical reaction to the food based off of those eating attitudes. So pretty, I mean, pretty powerful example of that in this, where that can be so harmful, Mm -hmm. not just to your relationship to the pho, but to the people group and then to your body all around. Perfect example. Love talking about that show. (laughs) I know. So I think the reality is, right, that these beliefs and feelings then control if somebody's going to choose to eat it or not and definitely influence the way that you decide and and could influence if you buy it or don't buy it. So it's just a lot of impact. So when I think about the parent in the parent-child relationship with these attitudes of course, at the moment, the the child early on in life don't have those beliefs yet. They don't. They can't like intellectualize the experience. They might have some feelings, right, that begin to happen around different kinds of foods. But more than anything, I think as a parent, 
we are the ones that are the vessel of those things. And so we're creating these environments for our children that either can be a delightful experience uh, or they can be a place that there is more of the tension and more of the fear. And Ellen Satter really just encourages delighting in feeding your kids and having more of a calm, um, positive environment and communicating that it's okay to eat the foods that you like and that are the ones that you connect to. And that as a parent, recognizing that that ability to feel delight in what you're feeding your kids and what you're putting on the family table, what you're packing in lunches, comes from if you have more of a positive belief and feeling about those foods, then you're probably going to pass that down. So recognizing that maybe it's um, coming from maybe the foods that you brought were brought up with, that were fed to you, that you have positive association with, or those foods that you maybe have traditions in um, around for holidays or family gatherings, or the foods that are connected to cultural religious beliefs that also bring up rituals or routines that are important to you and you have good memories associated with. So recognizing that those beliefs and those feelings that you've had and that conjured up, maybe especially when you think about traditions. Yeah. Like those feelings, they get built on and built on and built on, right? And then they just become even bigger than ever <laughs> because of the traditions. Recognize that as a parent, you have the power to, to pass that on to your kids and those positive food experiences. And some negative ones, too. I was just thinking about um, what I've learned from you around feeding children and trying to have a neutrality around the different foods on the table mm -hmm. and how an eating attitude, and you can correct me if I'm wrong yeah. here, is being communicated when you say, oh, you have to finish all that before you try this, or you we're going to do all of this before you can have dessert, or mm -hmm. make sure that you eat that, or just all, all those subtleties. Things, yes, are like so not aligned with Ellen Satter's work, right? Yes, because exactly what you're saying, all of those things do give a message. That's more negative and controlling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the child is going to internalize that and then have attitudes toward the different foods in their lives yeah. that hold baggage and like, oh, God, I should be eating more vegetables even as an adult, right? Like, mm -hmm. oh, I should be. I should be doing this. And, okay, I can't have that until, you know, it's sort of more of a treat later or whatever it is. Those attitudes get so easily spread. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And – I think it's important to name that a lot of the fear that is is present in the parent-child feeding relationship is fear around fatness and the fear that they could be feeding their children in a way that would lead to the body size of the child to not be the correct quote-unquote size that it's supposed to be and a parent taking on the you know the weight <laughs> of that responsibility and in thinking about these eating attitudes, we're going to get into, you know, again, this is a whole package, all yeah. of these eating competencies. So, but this, this piece is just to, I think if you're a parent and you're thinking about that, recognize that if you have those fears, you may be playing out some of your own fat phobia and your own size discrimination in the way that you're feeding your kids. And I know racism. you don't want. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to be doing that. <laughs> I know that we as parents don't want to be passing those things on. And so 
recognizing how can you be working on that on your own and within your own food relationship, your own relationship with yourself, your own relationship with your own, yeah, just societal um, beliefs and not allow for that fear to lead you to pass those things on to your kids. I'm so glad you said that because we're talking about some really important skills that people develop, but if you're not also doing the work around fat phobia, mm-hmm. then you got a problem mm-hmm. in terms of actually being able to digest, no pun intended, these these different skills. Yeah. You know, it, it would show up in your food acceptance skills and it would show up again in your eating attitudes, internal regulation skills, context, all yeah. of it yeah. could be overshadowed by some sort of fat phobia or yes. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I, the the other thought that I had was that many parents will say, no, 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 I I'm not, I, I want their body to be what their body is going to be, but I, I'm just wanting them to be healthy. Like I'm not necessarily saying that they can't gain weight or they can't be fat or something, but I guess I just also just want to push that because there is, I believe, so much a critical point in pediatric medical care <laughs> where there's so many parents getting scared by growth grids where a child's weight is going up or a little bit different off of a grid that is showing that some weight is being put on the body and then there's a reaction. And that's when maybe a parent is going to feel like, wait, I need to calm the excitement about food. I need to not let them enjoy the food so much. And again, I just want to just encourage Allowing for the body to go through the awkwardness of the growth and change and puberty and beyond, and even in that early phase, like before um, developmentally, before puberty even, to say, okay, let's let the body do its thing and not interrupt it with the mainstream dieting and interventions that people want to always jump in with. But instead, like stay grounded and rooted and going, but this is my family's recipe. Like I find delight. I love bringing this into my home or these are new, exciting foods that I have found in my adulthood and want to still feed my family. Do that. Do those things. And don't stop doing those things and totally analyzing their nutritional content to decide if you should replace something with fat-free something or whatever. And what would that look like, I mean, as you apply that to a healthier adult trying to figure out their relationship to food and these eating attitudes? Yeah. Well, we talk about food rules as a kind of phrase. And I do think that many folks that have developed eating disorders have developed a a system of rules around their eating and food. And I would say take some time to figure out what are those? What are those rules that you have? What are the beliefs you have about food and eating? And what are those feelings you have associated with those? And see if you want to break those down and see if those are actually serving you. And sometimes I know that a lot of the work with a dietitian and eating disorder treatment is breaking down those beliefs to see if they're grounded on truth and good sound nutrition science. And then also, you know, medical backing and and then sort of the emotions and feelings that come from it, you know, that might seep into, you know, psychotherapy as well and beyond nutrition counseling session. But it's certainly working with a dietitian is a good place to start to do that. So when I think about this sort of healthy adult that's just out there, I think we we all have some of those beliefs and just make sure that you're checking them 
So we will include a link to Carolyn Costin's book, Eight Keys to Recovery from an Eating Disorder, because within that, that's where she defines food rules and then has several questions that you can kind of go through to understand the root of where some of these eating attitudes come from and why that food rule, that belief, that value, uh, that feeling <laughs> has or has been created in your life. And so it's a great resource. So, so what are these questions from Carolyn Costin? I'll just read them. Yeah, okay. Okay. Great. How did I come up with this rule? Do I plan on following this rule forever? What happens if I break the rule? Is this rule based on facts or fears? How does this rule inhibit relationships? How does this rule enhance them? Do other people have to follow this rule to be okay? And if not, why do I? Does this rule allow for any flexibility for unusual situations like being sick or having an especially active week? Does this rule allow for special occasions or holidays? Would I tell anyone else to follow this rule? Why or why not? How can you challenge this food rule? Think about where, when, and how you can challenge this rule. That's such a good list. That's so helpful to think about this. I know. I, I think it, it helped. And I we have people just like, it's like, pick one thing. Right. <laughs> so it could be like, you need to... I don't even know. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that I would I would think is something a lot of people and myself could nitpick about my own relationship to food is my vegetarianism. Because I'm I'm a vegetarian and you know, a lot of people choose to be vegetarian or vegan for diet reasons. I I think at this point, after I mean, how many years has it been? Eight years, nine years. I can say that, yeah, okay, not everything was sorted out in my relationship to food when I chose to be one, but it was mostly out of environmental reasons and some more humanistic reasons as well in terms of what I was researching about the environment. And it felt like, for me, a really personal way that I could honestly, like, (laughs) this was my mindset at the time. I've always thought of myself as a very political person, but also pretty lazy, (laughs) And I was like, you know what? I care a lot. And I also don't act on much. But this is something that I act on every day. And this could be something for me that gets to be political in my life. And I encounter food all day long. And, you know, I'm probably not going to be the person that's able to talk about policy in large debates, but I can do this. Mm -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. felt really meaningful to me when I became a vegetarian. Oh my gosh, I love that you just started talking about this. Yes. Yeah. Can I, can I, yeah, okay, because it's totally highlighting the reality that you are making a decision that's based on your own values. Right. And we are saying that with these eating attitudes, we're, we're all going to be different and yeah. we're going to have different expressions of who we are and what our beliefs and values are. So I think some people could hear this and go, okay, so I can't have any. Feelings and beliefs, you know, but it's like, no, they just need to be thought through and well-formed and have a good foundation. And this is where it's another great tool of Ellen Satter, which we are not going to dive as deep into in this episode or any of these episodes in the Eating Competency series, but I have to mention it here because it's so perfect, (laughs) her uh, food hierarchy of needs. So she has this triangle that kind of tries to mimic Maslow's hierarchy of needs with with our food relationship. And there is something at the tip. So in Maslow's hierarchy of self-actualization, but on the tip of hers is called instrumental eating, instrumental food. And what I hear and what you're saying is like you were in a are in a place, right, that you can choose every day to have to make 
alternatives and make, you know, swivel a little bit in your food decisions because of your value to be vegetarian. And you can do that. But the reality is that you also have a firm foundation, which is what her whole concept of this hierarchy at, you know, shows is that you have to have enough food. You have to have food acceptance skills, which is, um, you know, we're our first episode. Like you have to have the ability to know and understand what is available to you and what what is socially acceptable out there. And then you can have novel food and you can build on that. So it's creativity, just like there's whole right. building. But then at the top, after you are well fed and like fully nourished and you've done all this stuff, you can sure you can right. choose to eat some things over that other thing. Yeah. At times. Yeah. And I would I mean, like I said, I can look back now and go, hmm, OK, there was some more stuff to figure out when I made that choice. It maybe wasn't a totally solid no. foundation. <laughs> no, it wasn't totally solid. I don't want to sell yeah. myself. Yeah too well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Um, you know, it wasn't totally solid. There were some things that I can think of even as we're just talking. We're like, oh, okay, that was a little, a little something. Yes. But over time, my relationship to my vegetarianism has changed totally. Mm. I mean, I'm so much less frigid about it. I, I call myself a vegetarian still, but it's sort of a joke with the people that are closest to me because I make so many exceptions to it. But it's sort of a term of convenience. Cured meats. Yeah, God, yeah. Yeah, cured I meat, smoked fish, <laughs> I, like anything that could go on a charcuterie plate, like I'm pretty in on, you yeah, know, but yeah. not always. It's like something right. that, and, and that sounds picky, and it is kind of picky, but it's mm. me trying to balance my value system that really would probably be maybe even more vegan, but like I'm finding more of a middle ground that makes more sense because I like cheese, everybody knows. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, like there's a middle ground that's flexing. And there are times where I'm like, wow, I'm eating less inside of my values now because I'm more focused on connection. And that's okay some months. And then there are some times where I'm like, you know what? Actually, I'm not actually listening to myself very much anymore. Mm. So then I swing the other way. You know, just. Yes. And I I think in somebody who has. Uh, a journey of that in, that has had an eating disorder is in the midst of trying to find recovery from an eating disorder. When I think about what uh, what do you, what to do around eating attitudes, I I think that this is what I want for people. Thank um, you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, is just to say, okay, I'm doing this thing with food. It's following a belief and a value I have, and let me back it up. Let me ask myself all of these questions, like Carolyn Costin created with her food rule examination, and. And make sure that it truly is grounded in something solid or maybe using the Ellen Satter hierarchy of of food needs and looking at that and going, am I on solid ground with the thing that I'm doing here? Because so many times I think of people with eating disorders have come to a really rigid, restrictive place because they're trying to only live in that instrumental place, that place of only living into their values 100% with all rigidity and perfectionism. And then they aren't able to feed themselves enough and nourish their whole body, mind and soul. Right. <laughs> so I think if if I'm speaking, you know, if somebody, listener is wanting that and they're in the midst of their recovery process, I would say yes, like, Examine your food beliefs and see if they're keeping you from fully nourishing yourself. Right. And let yourself be a human being that grows and changes. Mm. Like you probably shouldn't have a belief system that never is examined or never changes an inch for 20 years. I mean, it's possible. It's possible. I don't want to be extreme. But I mean, life circumstances change it. Change your 
iron levels change, your cravings change, like so Mm. much changes. And Mm -hmm. so to reassess what your eating attitudes are at different points in your life is, I think, pretty important. Yeah, yeah. And one of the uh, kind of calls to action, I would say, that comes from Ellen Satter in, in her work around the eating attitudes also is asking yourself what helps you trust yourself. Hmm. Oh, I like that. So if you, I think your example is perfect of like in that, does that feel more integrated for you to be mostly vegetarian? That is helping you know that you're integrating and you're expressing more fully who you think you are um, from your values and your actions integrated. And that I think makes you trust yourself more because you are living into that. You're attuned and you're you're acting on that. <laughs> and I think if something, a value or a belief keeps us from trusting ourselves, and instead it's just this like rigid external rule, eh, I, yeah, if it's moving right. away from attunement, I think that's, that's probably problematic. Yes. And something that, I mean, in terms of body trust, it, it should be something that's like alive rather than either an external thing that is a rule that you're kind of just eyes focused on or something that is just about one part of you like it should be an alive moving thing because that's what attunement is so i think in searching for an eating attitude that is going to be healthy for us i think it's helpful to think okay something that helps you trust yourself and syncs up to allow for you to eat food you like in satisfying amounts that's something that i feel is a good touch point or a good checkpoint right Thanks so much for listening today. Make sure that you subscribe to The Appetite so you are aware of when our third part of this series gets released. We'll be talking about contextual skills and eating competency. Make sure you're following along with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you want to find more about Opal and our programming, make sure you visit opalfoodandbody.com. Thank you to Daniel Gunther at Jackstra Cultural Center for Sound Engineering, to Aaron Davidson for The Appetite's original music, and to Hans Anderson for editing. Join us next time again for the third part of our series on context and eating competency. Talk to you soon.